So last night in talking about the Four Noble Truths, we got to the fourth of the Noble Truths, which is the Eightfold Path. And the eighth of the Eightfold Path is right concentration, appropriate concentration. And that's defined as the first four jhanas. And the description of the first jhana always starts out with Secluded from sense desire, secluded from unwholesome states of mind, one enters and remains in the first jhana. This seclusion from sense desire, seclusion from unwholesome states of mind, refers to the abandoning of the five hindrances, the five states of mind that can hinder progress on the spiritual path. And that's what I want to take a look at tonight. The hindrances occur in many different suttas, and in this particular sutta, they're described something like this. Having abandoned covetousness for the world, one dwells with a mind free from covetousness. One purifies one's mind from covetousness. So, covetousness Wanting something, often you find it translated as a desire for sensual gratification. It's that act of, I want to get something. I want to entertain or please my senses. The Buddha compared sense desire to being in debt. He says... Suppose a man were to take a loan and apply it to his business and his business were to succeed so that he could pay back his old debts and would have enough money left over to maintain a family. He would reflect on this and as a result he would become glad and experience joy. If you are in debt, you don't get to take the time off. You've got to keep showing up and making the payments. If you can't make the payments, well, I used to say they take your house away, but if you can't make the payments, then the whole world economic system collapses. <laughs> right? So we are in debt to our senses. No sense pleasure is ultimately satisfying. Each sense pleasure that we experience simply leads to us wanting another sense pleasure. If you see a really beautiful sunset, is your reaction, wow, that was great. I never have to see another beautiful sunset as long as I live. No, of course not. You're back out the next night hoping to see something at least as good, if not better. Everything that we get that's a sense pleasure only leads eventually, to wanting more of that kind of sense pleasure. So we're in debt. We can't ever really stop. We have to keep working to satisfy our senses because nothing is ultimately satisfying. The Buddha also compared sensual desire to a pond into which somebody had poured many colored dyes If you look into the pond, you can't see into the depths because the colors distort what's there. Our desire for sensual gratification 
hinders our ability to see what's really going on. And it hinders our ability to get concentrated because we're all fantasizing about something that will bring us sensual gratification or remembering something that did bring us sensual gratification. But if we can overcome this desire for sensual gratification, then it makes the practice go much smoother. Luckily, there are six things that are given that can be developed for overcoming sensual gratification. They are learning the sign of the unattractive, that is the repulsive nature of the body, application to meditation on the unattractive, guarding the doors of the sense faculties, moderation in eating, noble friends and noble conversations. Probably not the list you were hoping for. Uh, Learning the sign of the unattractive, that is the repulsive nature of the body. Um, When I started doing this practice, I'd finally gotten a pretty good body image. You know, it, it felt okay to be me in this body. I mean, when I was a kid, I used my body to transport my head from place to place. But then I moved to California, and of course in California you got to get into the outdoors and do all the stuff. And I finally actually entered my body, and I liked it. It was great. And now, learning the sign of the unattractive, that is the repulsive nature of the body. Hey, wait, I just did seven years of work to get to the opposite. Well, I think perhaps what really is going to be beneficial for us here is to get an accurate picture of our body. As I said, we live in a culture that's totally crazy and thinks that we should never look more than 25 years old. It's not going to happen, right? You're going to age and your body is going to not look as well as you would like it. And even if you're 25, there's things about your body you might not like. But we need to realize that our bodies are, well, they're our vehicles. We have to maintain them. It's good to appreciate them. It's work that has to be done. But it's just a part of being human. It's not the be-all and end-all of everything. We need to overcome the cultural conditioning that is so ridiculous and get a realistic picture of the body. The body has to be fed, clothed, kept warm, cleaned, and exercised. You have to take care of it. But we don't have to become repulsed by it, nor should we become infatuated by it. Application to meditation on the unattractive. At the time of the Buddha, if you were someone who was dealing with lust as your major hindrance, then they would send you to the charnel grounds to meditate. A charnel ground is not like a cemetery. A cemetery is actually a pretty nice place. I mean, you can go over to the church and wander around in the cemetery. You know, they keep the grass cut, nice little monuments. Uh, When I was traveling, one of my fellow travelers pointed out to me that, hey, if you can't find a place to sleep, you know, go to the cemetery. 
It'll be free. Nobody's going to bother you. Right? He was right. You know, it's a great place. But a charnel ground, now that's a very different matter. At the time of the Buddha, if you were wealthy enough, then when you died, there would be a cremation. But a cremation costs a good bit of money, and most people couldn't afford to be cremated. So they would take your body and they would dump it in a charnel ground where it would rot and decay and get eaten. So you could go meditate in a charnel ground and experience both visually and olfactorily bodies in various stages of decay. In looking at enough bodies rotting away, this might reduce the lust you were having for some other body. You would come to the conclusion, oh, this body you're lusting after is eventually going to wind up like this. At least that's what was hoped for. So this is what is meant by application to meditation on the unattractive. We don't have charnel grounds here in the West, so I guess you don't have to do that. Guarding the doors of the sense faculties. Basically, this means using our senses as a survival tool rather than an amusement park. We get this idea that you know we are to entertain our senses. And so we go out seeking sensual pleasure and looking for whatever can entertain us. Guarding the doors of the sense faculties is described as one do, when one sees a sight, one does not grasp at the major signs or secondary characteristics, lest evil, unwholesome states such as greed or hatred overcome one. Uh, an example, I teach each year uh, very near to Santa Fe, New Mexico. And like this retreat, that retreat ends on a Sunday. Santa Fe, New Mexico is a very interesting place on a Sunday. All of the Native Americans come into town with their handicrafts and they set up around the square. And so there's this huge amount of very nice turquoise jewelry and pottery and things like that, rugs. Plus, around the square are all the tourist shops where they're selling various artwork and everything else. And I love going there after teaching the retreat. I'm not interested in buying anything. I'm looking at it as a museum, right? It's a museum of contemporary handicraft art, and it's wonderful to wander around and look at it. I can see the stuff. I can appreciate it. That's it. No further. No sense of... I got to have this or anything like that. This is what we need to do with our senses. We use our senses. We have the enjoyment. If there's something pleasurable, we enjoy it. That's it. You just leave it right there. Don't get hooked on it. Don't go plotting how you can get it or how you got to get rid of it or anything. You just experience the world through your senses and that's what's happening. Moderation in eating. You come on a retreat like this and, yeah, about the only excitement you got is three meals a day. All right? So you get kind of excited about the food and you get into it. I mean, it's good food here and so you 
get all your platal hold and maybe you go back for seconds and because of indulging in the sensual pleasure of eating then that just sort of leads to craving for more sensual pleasure of eating and so while you're trying to meditate you're wondering what's going to be for supper on a retreat it's probably quite useful if you eat just to the point of almost being full rather than till you're totally stuffed. If you can stop before you get completely full, it will have benefits. And one of them is a reduction in sense desire. And then the last two, noble friends and noble conversations. I will defer that for a moment. I wish I had better suggestions for you, and I mean that most sincerely. When I heard Ayakima's first talk on the five hindrances, she prefaced it by saying, pay attention, you may find one of these is your hindrance. This is the one that comes up for you. And I recognized, oh yeah, sense desire, that's, that's what gets me. Uh, so yeah, I really do wish I had more more better things to tell you. What I can say, it's helpful to see things accurately, to see the limitations that things have, to see that everything is less than perfect. You see someone and they're attractive, Okay, so you're getting the visual sense of the nice shape of their body. But it doesn't necessarily mean they're the perfect person. In fact, if they're the perfect person, they probably won't be interested in you, right? So get a realistic view of what's going on. Try and see that Everything is less than perfect. You're walking down the street, you see something in a shop window, you want it. Well, it too is going to be less than perfect. So when the desire for something comes up, get a realistic picture of it. You don't have to go making things up. I mean, if all the things of creation are dukkha, are not inherently satisfactory... All you have to do is look carefully and get a realistic view. This is beautiful, this is wonderful, but this also has these flaws in it that it's going to be less than perfect. That's probably the best thing I can say for dealing with sense desire. At least it's been helpful for me. The second of the hindrances... Having abandoned ill will and hatred, one dwells with a benevolent mind, sympathetic for the welfare of all living beings. One purifies one's mind from ill will and hatred. So the second of the hindrances is ill will and hatred, uh, anger and ill will. It's the opposite of sensual desire, the desire for sensual gratification. The first hindrance is about, I want to get stuff, The second hindrance is about, I want to get rid of stuff. Okay? And the Buddha compares that to being physically ill. 
Suppose a man were to become sick, afflicted, gravely ill, so that he could not enjoy his food and his strength would decline. And after some time he would recover from that illness and would again enjoy his food and regain his bodily strength. He would reflect on this and as a result he would become glad and experience joy. They don't call it ill will for nothing. It is like being physically ill. If you're physically ill, you don't feel well, you're hot, you can't think straight, you can't do what you want to do. If you're angry, it doesn't feel good, you're hot, you can't think straight, and you can't do what you want to do. It's very closely related. The Buddha compared anger and ill will to a small pond where there's a boiling hot spring. If you try and look into the pond to see into the depths, you can't because of all the steam and bubbles. He also compared anger and ill will to picking up hot coals and throwing them at someone. Now, who's guaranteed to get burned? If someone is throwing hot coals at you, there's no requirement that you have to catch them and throw them back. If you've got any sense, you just jump out of the way. There's a story about a Brahmin who comes to see the Buddha. And he's very upset because, you see, his younger brother had come to see the Buddha a few days before. And his younger brother had become a monk. And this Brahmin was concerned that the Buddha was corrupting the youth. And he shows up and he's just you know going on about it and everything. And finally he pauses for breath and the Buddha says, Excuse me, do you ever give a feast? Yes, of course I give feast. When you, when you give a feast, do you prepare nice food? Yes, of course I prepare nice food. Well, suppose you were to give a feast and prepare nice food and no one came to the feast. To whom would the food belong? Belong to me. Just so, Brahman, I'm not coming to your feast. The Brahman was so impressed that he too became a monk. <laughs> when someone's angry at you, there's no requirement that you get angry back. We can see where this is an evolutionary advantageous survival skill, right? Someone gets big and angry and you get big and angry, you know, to calm them down, push them away. But in civilized society, you know, most people when they're angry at you are not going to hit you with a stick if they think that you're weak, right? So you don't have to get angry back. Can you see the pain that this person is in? Can you react out of compassion for them as opposed to returning the hot coals they're throwing at you by throwing them back at them. It's hard. It's a difficult thing. But if you can pull it off, it's a very powerful thing. Guess what? There are six things to do for overcoming anger and ill will. These are learning the sign of loving kindness, application to meditation on loving kindness, Reflection on the ownership of action, abundance of wise reflection, 
noble friends and noble conversations. So learning the sign of loving kindness, learning what it means, what it feels like to love. Uh, Metta is usually translated as loving kindness, as it is here. In actuality, it's unconditional love. It's loving someone just because they're someone, not because of all the nice things they've done for you. But it's also a very excellent antidote to anger and ill will. If you are meditating and you're working your way towards access concentration and you find yourself getting into a negative state, you're mad at somebody, the thing to do is to drop whatever meditation practice you're doing and switch to doing metta practice. You don't have to do the metta for the person that you're angry at. That might be too much, but just do the metta for somebody. Do it for yourself. Do it for somebody you really like. Do it for the Dalai Lama. Okay? Just find somebody that you can do metta for. That will counteract the anger and ill will. Get it calmed down. When you're feeling grounded and stable again, then you can go back to doing the other practice. So this is the best way to deal with anger and ill will is actually with the opposite of it love and compassion. Reflection on the ownership of action. Ever do something when you were angry that wasn't exactly the wisest choice? When you're in an angry state, when you're mad, you're actually in a place where you're not in a good place to act. Because there's no excuses, you know. You can't do something out of anger and then, oh, I'll call up the karma gods and tell them it was a mistake, right? You know, you do whatever it is and you will have to deal with the consequences. So the reflection on ownership of action is reflecting on the fact that when you're angry, you're in a place where you're most likely to act in an unwise way and are going to have to deal with the consequences. So it's better to actually see if you can work your way out of that place so that you can actually regain your power. Abundance of wise reflection. Basically reflecting on what it's like to be angry. It's not a pleasant thing. I mean, sometimes, you know, we get our righteous anger going and... uh, But even then, it doesn't feel good. It's an unpleasant experience to be in an angry state of mind. So, when you're... The next time you're angry, try and reflect on it. See what it's like. Do you really want to spend time hanging out in such a state? Or would you rather move on? Okay, so if you'd rather move on, then try doing some metta and see if you can change your mind. And noble friends and noble conversations, which, again, I will defer. It's interesting. Ajahn Chah, who is a great 
teacher in the Thai forest tradition in the last century, <clears throat> said that he actually preferred people who had anger and ill will as their major hindrance, the aversive types, as opposed to the greedy types. Because anger and ill will felt unpleasant, and they would do the work more vigorously, work harder than the greedy types. The greedy types, yeah, they were willing to work hard till they got some pleasure, and then they were like, okay, fine, got my thing, and then they'd kick back. But the aversive types would work harder because it was so unpleasant to be aversive. So if you find yourself being one of those aversive types, okay, count it as a blessing <laughs> and use it to spur you to work harder on the spiritual path. The third hindrance. Having abandoned dullness and drowsiness, one dwells perceiving light, mindful and clearly comprehending. One purifies one's mind from dullness and drowsiness. Dullness and drowsiness, sometimes given as sloth and torpor. I've also seen it laziness and lassitude. Basically, it's either you're physically not up to the task, you're falling asleep, or you're mentally not willing to put in the energy to do the work. You come in here, you sit down, you're like, man, it's so much work to follow the breath. I think I'll just sit here and fantasize. That's a lot easier. All right? So you don't have the mental energy to do the work. I mentioned this already. If you're going to be working with concentration, there has to be enough physical energy to go with that because if you crank up the concentration and you don't have physical energy, you wind up going to sleep. So you're overcome with the third hindrance of sloth and torpor. The Buddha compares sloth and torpor to being in a prison. Suppose a man were locked up in a prison... After some time, he would be released from prison, safe and secure with no loss of his possessions. He would reflect on this, and as a result, he would become glad and experience joy. If you're a prisoner, you can't do what you want to do. You're just sitting there. You're missing out on all the good stuff. If you're overcome with sloth and torpor while you're trying to meditate... Can't do what you want to do. You're just sitting there. You're missing out on all the good stuff that can come from meditation. It's a very apt simile. The Buddha also compared sloth and torpor to a pond that's gone stagnant and there's algae and weeds. Again, you can't look into it and see into the depths. But guess what? There are six things for overcoming Sloth and torpor. These are recognizing that overeating is the basis for sloth and torpor, changing the postures, attention to the perception of light, living in the open air, noble friends and noble conversations. Recognizing that overeating is the basis for sloth and torpor. There's a reason we don't have meditation periods right after we eat. 
It's because you're busy digesting the food. That's where your energy's going. And so you eat a meal, and if you sit down to meditate, you're quite likely to fall asleep. Well, there's also the fact we need somebody to wash the dishes and clean up the kitchen, but that's only part of the reason. If you're dealing with sleepiness on this retreat, one of the best things you can do is eat less food. Right? You don't have to starve yourself, but don't stuff yourself. As I say, see if you can quit, you know, just before you're hungry. I mean, just before you're full. You know, a tiny taste of hunger left there. That will actually provide you more energy. You don't need a lot of calories while you're here. I mean, you're not running up any hills or riding your bike or even thinking very much, hopefully. Right? So you don't need a lot of food. Uh, let your body actually tell you how much you need and see if you can back off. If you eat less food, then you're actually counteracting two of the five hindrances, both sensual desire and sloth and torpor. Changing the postures, attention to the perception of light living in the open air. If you're feeling sleepy when you meditate, things to do, rub your cheeks, pinch and pull on your earlobes, find the acupressure point on your ear and squeeze it really hard, if you know where that is. Open your eyes. Look at the brightest light you can see. And if all else fails, stand up. You're probably not going to fall asleep standing up. If it seems to be the case, stand up with your eyes open. Now, you can do standing meditation. You can pay attention to the breath, or you can pay attention to the very subtle adjustments that you're making all the time to keep your balance. I mean, when we're standing still, there's a lot of little things that are going on, and you can pay attention to those. The one thing about standing meditation is don't lock your knees. Keep them flexed. If you lock your knees, you can pass out. This produces definitely unpleasant sensation when you crash to the ground. And then it says, uh, living in the open air, get some fresh air. If you're feeling sleepy in the afternoon, you know, go out, do your walking meditation in the fresh air. That'll help wake you up. And these are things I can recommend for overcoming sloth and torpor. Sometimes none of them will work. Sometimes you just have to give in and, okay, recognize you need a nap. All right, take a nap. It's important to take care of your body. We come into these retreats having been out there in the crazy, unreal world doing far too much stuff, and we're tired. So if you need to take a nap after lunch, take a nap after lunch. If you need to sleep in one morning, sleep in one morning. Get caught up on your sleep. That will be the best way to deal with sloth and torpor. And then noble friends and noble conversations, which I will defer for the moment. The next hindrance. Having abandoned restlessness and worry, one dwells at ease within oneself with a peaceful mind. 
One purifies one's mind from restlessness and worry. So restlessness and worry is the opposite of sloth and torpor. It arises because of too much energy. Too much energy in the mind where it just won't settle down. It's all over the place. It's got all these plans. It's got a plan and everything else. Or too much energy in the body. You sit down and you just can't get comfortable. And when you finally do get comfortable, you still want to move. It's that fidgeting energy there. The Buddha compares restlessness and worry to being a slave. Suppose a man were a slave, without independence, subservient to others, unable to go where he wants. After some time, he would be released from slavery and gain his independence. He would no longer be subservient to others, but a free man, able to go where he wants. He would reflect on this, and as a result, he would become glad and experience joy. If you're a slave, you're busy all the time. You're going here and doing that, going there and doing this. But you don't get to do what you want to do. Right? It's a very busy life, but you don't do what you want to do. If you're trying to meditate and there's restlessness or worry, same thing. <laughs> Lots of energy, but going in the wrong directions. Buddha also compared restlessness and worry to a small pond where there's a strong wind blowing over the surface, which makes waves, and so you can't see into the depths. But there are six things for overcoming restlessness and worry. These are much learning, interrogation, skill in the Vinaya, associating with senior monks, noble friends, and noble conversations. Much learning. Most of these are for tackling the worry part. So learn what the Buddha is teaching. Find out how the path is going to go. This can set your mind at ease. Interrogation. If you have questions, find somebody to ask the questions of. If you don't get a satisfactory answer, ask somebody else. Maybe there is no satisfactory answer and you have to accept it, but just because somebody gives you an answer, you know, you don't have to necessarily digest it and swallow it. So ask lots of questions. It's a good thing. Skill in the Vinaya. The Vinaya is the rules for the monks and nuns and the stories about how they came to be made. At first, there were no rules. At first, all of the Buddha's followers were fully enlightened. They didn't need rules. But then he started getting followers that weren't fully enlightened, and they would misbehave, and the Buddha would have to make up a rule. So this is what the Vinaya is. And skill in the Vinaya, for us lay people, means skill in the precepts. If you keep the precepts well, there's not much to worry about. I mean, if you're out robbing banks and you come and you sit down to meditate, you're probably going to be worried the police are coming after you. But if you're not taking what's not given, then you don't have to worry about that. So that can be very helpful. Practice the, the precepts. Associating with senior monks, learn by examples from other 
Dharma students, see how they lead their lives, see what's going on. And noble friends and noble conversations, which I will defer. Now, these, as I said, are mostly for dealing with the mental too much energy, the worry aspect of it. For the physical, sometimes if you've got too much energy, what you need to do is actually just go burn it off. Go for a vigorous walk. It's funny, if you've got too little energy, sometimes what you need to do is go for a vigorous walk, you know, get the energy to come up. Um, but if you've got too much, sometimes it's wise to just go burn it off, just go for a vigorous walk, something like that, to, to burn the energy off. Um, if you're drinking things with caffeine, yeah, you could definitely cut back on that. That would be another way to see if you can deal with the physical energy. The fifth of the hindrances is skeptical doubt. Having abandoned doubt, one dwells as one who has passed beyond doubt, unperplexed about wholesome states. One purifies one's mind from doubt. Doubt can take many different forms. There can be doubt about the path. Is this an authentic path? Does this path have a heart? Does this lead in the right direction? There can be a doubt about the teacher. Well, the path is good, but I don't know about this guy. Does he know what he's talking about? I'm not sure. There can be doubt about your companions on the path. Well, yeah, I'm working really hard, but what about all these other people? You know, this is not a real supportive group. But the most insidious doubt, the worst of it, is doubting yourself. Yeah, this is the right path, but man, this is so hard, I can't do it. I don't understand it. It's too much work, or something like that. Doubt is a very, very damaging hindrance. We need to address it. The Buddha compares skeptical doubt to being on a perilous desert journey where provisions are scarce and bandits abound. Suppose a man with wealth and possessions were traveling along a desert road where food was scarce and dangers were many. After some time, he would cross over the desert and arrive safely at a village which is safe and free from danger. He would reflect on this, and as a result, he would become glad and experience joy. If you're on a perilous desert journey and there might not be any water in this direction, you don't want to go that way. So maybe you'll go this way, but wait, there won't be the bandits over here. We won't. What if we go? No, there won't be any food. So you do more starting and stopping than actual progressing. This can happen on the spiritual path. You start out meditating with the Vipassana group, but it's kind of dry, you know, not real exciting. You know, you think, well, maybe I'll try the Tibetan. I mean, look at their paintings, right? They got horns. You know, it's pretty exciting. So you, you join the Tibetans, and it turns out to be a little too Catholic, a little too Baroque. Zen, that's where it's at. I mean, look at their gardens. That's really cool. They got all these great stories. So you switch to Zen. Turns out they hit you with a stick. <laughs> Sufi dancing. Sufi dancing. 
So you're not making any progress at all. You know, you're going down one path and turning around and coming back and going down another. It's actually necessary to follow a path long enough to see where it leads. The Buddha compared skeptical doubt to a pond that was full of mud. You can't see into the depths. And luckily, there are six things for overcoming skeptical doubt. These are much learning, interrogation, skill in the Vinaya, resolution, and noble friends and noble conversations. Much learning, interrogation, skill in the Vinaya, these are ones that were mentioned also for restlessness and worry. So if you have your doubts, ask questions. Learn what's going on. Read up on this stuff. Try out the precepts. In many spiritual traditions, the ethics is based on do this stuff or you're going to suffer in hell. Right? But in Buddhism, you you can find that, no doubt about it. But the real orientation is try out these five precepts and see if your life is better. This is ways of behavior that actually improve your life. Okay, so try it out. If you gain skill in the precepts, does it make your life go better? If so, then that can give you some encouragement on the path, can erase some of the doubt about how this all works. And then resolution. Resolving to stick to the path long enough to find out where it really leads. I've heard it said that if you start a spiritual path, in order to really know where it goes, you need to put in about five years to really get a sense of what's happening. Things move kind of slowly on the spiritual path. I mean, there are times when it moves quite quickly, but overall it's a slow progress. Of course, sometimes you may start some spiritual path and it becomes rather obvious this is not the right path. Just because you started, you don't have to stay for five years. But if the path seems like it's good and you're not sure you can do it or something like that, try and stick with it. You know, Make the resolve to really find out what's going on there. See where it leads. And then noble friends and noble conversations. In one of the suttas, Ananda, who was the Buddha's attendant, is having a discussion with one of the other monks about what is the most important part of the spiritual path. Now, Ananda was very gregarious and outgoing, uh, and he felt that the most important part of the spiritual path was noble friends and noble conversations. And the monk he was discussing this with was the meditation master, the guy who could sit longer and stronger than anybody else. He thought meditation was the most important part of the spiritual path. So they discussed it, and as always happens in these stories, they went to see the Buddha, and they saluted him and sat down at one side. And Ananda says, Venerable Sir, I say that noble friends and noble conversations are half the holy life. And the Buddha responds, Do not say so, Ananda. 
Noble friends and noble conversations are the entire holy life. It's very important to have support on this path. It's really hard to do it by yourself. Having noble friends with whom you can have noble conversations counteracts all of these hindrances. It gives you somebody to get a reality check from. It gives you somebody to ask questions of. It, it really is a very valuable aid on the path and can help you overcome all of these hindrances. When one sees that these five hindrances are unabandoned within oneself, one regards that as a debt, as sickness, as confinement in prison, as slavery, as a desert road. But when one sees that these five hindrances have been abandoned within oneself, one regards that as freedom from debt, as good health, as release from prison, as freedom from slavery, as a place of safety. When one sees that these five hindrances have been abandoned within oneself, gladness arises. When one is gladdened, rapture arises. When one's mind is filled with rapture, one's body becomes tranquil. Tranquil in body, one experiences happiness. Being happy, one's mind becomes concentrated. Thus secluded from sense pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states of mind, one enters and remains in the first jhana, which is accompanied by initial and sustained attention to the meditation subject and is filled with rapture and happiness, born of seclusion. So this is the five hindrances, five states of mind that can hinder progress on the spiritual path. And hopefully a little bit about how to deal with them. Questions? Comments. One thing I could say is that Arriving at access concentration is the act of overcoming these hindrances. You could use the hindrances as your labels for your distractions. Pretty much any distraction you have is going to fall into one of these categories. So once you've stopped being distracted, then the hindrances certainly are not going to arise. So the method for getting secluded from unwholesome states of mind uh, is to overcome these five hindrances, which are unwholesome states of mind, by continually working at coming back to your meditation object whenever you get distracted. What do you mean by that? Coming down hindrances is kind of less obstacles on concentration. 
Correct. With the granular concentration, it's much easier actually to suppress something. Yeah, exactly. You've you've got something that sort of builds up. You've got to get the hindrances a little bit aside to get a little bit of concentration, but now that you've got a little bit of concentration, it makes it easier to keep the hindrances aside, which is going to give you more concentration, which is, yeah, going to build up. Right. The abandoning of the hindrances builds the concentration, which enables you to further abandon the hindrances. Right. Could you say it again? Yeah, you have to suppress the hindrances before you enter the jhana to get to access concentration. So definitely, they're suppressed. They're not uprooted. They'll come back once you lose your concentration. They only get uprooted, well... They get uprooted in the various stages of enlightenment, but they're only all taken care of when you're totally enlightened. So it's a good thing you don't have to uproot them to get to the jhanas, since you need the jhanas along the way. Yeah, but definitely you're temporarily suppressing them with your focus on your object of meditation. 